the best way I know for us to understand um, the actions in Acts chapter 21 and 22, the actions that transpire that Mike, Mike read this passage to us so well, the best way I think for us to wrap our mind around it is to remember something that many of us lived through. I want you to imagine Baghdad late in 2003. The second Iraq, the second war has, has begun. The American forces and those who've joined with them are going through Iraq. It's getting close to Ramadan. It's very similar to what happened in the Tet Offensive, if you can remember back to 1968. I can't, but Janelle can. (laughs) If you can have some sort of imagination of the tensions, the bombings, If, if you don't remember it, but you saw the movie Black Hawk Down, that event occurred during what became known as the Ramadan Offensive, when the resistance began a very vigorous guerrilla warfare against the invading army. If you can imagine how tense it was, and that's part of what made the movie Black Hawk Down an excellent piece of film is that it captured this incredible tension, this hyper danger. That's what's going on in Jerusalem when Paul arrives there. He's back from a remarkable missionary journey that led him out of Israel into the wider non-Jewish world. And here he comes marching back into Jerusalem. And those of you who were with us last week, you know that in chapter 20, he's got an entourage. He's got a whole group of non-Jews with him. He's got a group of Gentiles. And they're from all over the Roman Empire. They're from Thessalonica. They're from Derby and Asia. And he's bringing this group right into the middle of the agitated capital, right? This is like taking a whole group of, of Americans right into Baghdad on some sightseeing tour late in 2003. You see, this is a Jewish religious holiday. And Jerusalem is occupied by a foreign army. Built that, that fortress it described. It's built right up next to the temple. The reason the, 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 kind of the leader of the Roman army gets there so quick is because they've got this giant fort right next to the Jewish temple and they can look down into the courtyards and they can see this mob, this thing that's happening. And so when Paul arrives on the outskirts of Jerusalem and he meets, and he meets with the, the church leaders... And he tells them about all the amazing things that have happened as Christianity is spreading beyond Israel out into the Roman Empire. They're very happy. And then they say immediately, Paul, the mood in Jerusalem has changed since you were here last. This is a very dangerous place 
for you. Xenophobia is at an all-time high. Judaism is clamping down its borders. The enemy is Rome. And the only greater enemy than Rome are traitors who dilute Judaism. And Paul, you've showed up. You, this former Pharisee who's gone out beyond Israel and the rumors are flying about you that you are telling Jews they don't have to be Jews anymore. Paul, Paul, this is dangerous. This is an explosive situation. And the, and the, the mood of the city is like a growing tsunami. The only way we can figure for this thing to not erupt is if you could do something so public and so definitive that shows you are not against the old Jewish ways. So go through this process that everybody would understand where you take a vow and it has all these steps that are public and you not only do it for yourself but we've got some very poor men who have gone through this vow and they need to do part of the process to pay part of this um, fee. Why don't you go to the temple and do this? It's, it's a desperate measure. Paul goes for it. It doesn't work. It backfires terribly. In verse, in Acts chapter 22, chapter 21, starting in verses 27, things get out of hand. There's apparently some Jews in the city, because it's a religious holiday like Ramadan, they've come from all over, and they had seen, they were Jews from Asia, and they had seen Paul in Asia. And they saw Paul with a non-Jew at some point earlier in the day in Jerusalem. And then they see Paul in the temple. There's a sign right as you enter the temple. I can't quote it exactly, but um, it says, Josephus recorded it. uh, Beware all who are non-Jews that enter into this temple. Death will be on your head. Paul, it's, it's, it's immediate execution if you take a non-Jew up into the inner part of the temple. They're convinced that Paul is against Judaism, that he's been teaching Jews not to be Jews. And then they think that Paul has taken a Gentile right into the heart of the temple. And in very quick, the way these things happen, a mob turns into a riot. It's, it's like November 10th, 1938. Five years of Nazi policy slowly and ever more seriously alienating, ostracizing, persecuting the Jewish community in, in Germany. In August, they tell all Polish Jews that by the end of October, you have to be out of Germany. August 27th in the evening or August 28th, the Nazi goes around, the Nazi um, military force goes around, they knock on the doors 
They get all Polish Jews. They take them to trains. They put them on trains. They send them to the Polish border. On the Polish border, the Polish military are waiting. They send them back. And then they're stuck in no man's land. It's raining. It's terrible weather. One of the families writes a a fast letter to their son in Paris. He reads what's happening. He's 17. He buys a revolver, buys bullets, goes to the German embassy in Paris and shoots a diplomat. That night, Germany finds out about it. They ratchet up. Within two days, the diplomat dies. And on the evening of November 10th, the... The, the Nazi military force, Kristallnacht. They go through Germany, 750 Jewish businesses, some 2,000 synagogues and cemeteries. They destroy them. We do not still to this day know how many Jews were killed. A mob that fast flashed because there were people at the center of it inciting an already present xenophobia. That's what happened in this moment with Paul. Paul is in a very dangerous situation. The mob, they're about to tear him to pieces. The the Roman army rushes in. They, They stop the riot. The mob cries out, kill this man. They cry out the same thing they cried out when Jesus was arrested. Away with him. It's a technical term. It's a term often used in Rome to deal with somebody that is messing with Pax Romana. And you don't mess with Pax Romana or you get the business end of Pax Romana, which is often a cross. That's how empires keep peace. So when this Roman general gets a hold of Paul, Paul is not safe because the standard next step is he kills Paul so Paul is in a precarious situation he's got the mob on one side that's going to tear him to pieces and he's got a Roman army that's got a hold of him two chains we don't know this could mean either one chain from him to a guard on this side and a guard on that side or it means his hands are chained behind his back and there's a chain around his neck that he's being led by these two ways that the Roman army would chain prisoners it gets out of control and then Paul says in Greek to this Roman Leader, can I talk to you? He says, wow, you must be an educated man. I thought you were just some hillbilly. And Paul says, I'm not a hillbilly. I'm from a very important city, which, which was a big card to play in that caste system. And he says, let me talk to the crowd. Why? Why? Why in the world would Paul want to talk to the crowd? If you have your Bibles open, find, or if you have a Bible, find Romans chapter 9. See, I, I think in order to really know what's going on here, you've got to feel in your bones the life 
threatening tension of the moment. What would make Paul want to address this mob? Romans chapter 9. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Paul loves them. He really really does. And look at chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verse 2. I bear witness that I have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 1, my heart's desire and a prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. He has not stopped praying. He loves these people. These are his people. And he loves them more than they hate him. Parents, You can understand that. That's what drives Paul. But he wants to tell them about Jesus. And this is a risky strategy. So he starts in a very smart way. Look what he does. Look look what he does in chapter 22, verse 3. I am a Jew. Now he's speaking in Hebrew. He's speaking in the language that they realize he's one of them. Remember, there's not YouTube, there's not Facebook, there's not nightly news. This mob is angry, and all they've been told is there's a rabble-rouser and a troublemaker. His picture hasn't, there is no picture. There's no Polaroid. He says, hey guys, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. I was born here in this place, I was raised in Jerusalem, and I got the, the strictest Jewish education you could get. Gamaliel was the most influential teacher of the first century. Hands down, nobody even came close to them. Paul just played a bona fides that trumps everything. I was zealous for God. By the way, zealous for God. Some of your Bible says jealous for God. This is, a, this is a technical concept. The idea is that I am not only, I not only care about God, I am angry at anybody who is not loyal to God. And I will kill them. Anybody who messes with law or land or people that belong to God, I will go after them. That's exactly what this crowd was. They, were, they had that. Paul says, I I was just like you. And then he tells the story of his shift. And he tells it in, in a language they get. I mean, this was a crowd that was totally open to dreams and visions. Now look, in our Western sophisticated, anti-supernatural, scientific arrogance, we read about these dreams and visions and we sit in judgment over him and over the whole rest of the world and over the whole rest of civilization and over the whole rest of history where people actually believe there is a middle level, that there is a spiritual realm. But they didn't hear it like that. They weren't cultured despisers of this kind of stuff. They bought into this kind of stuff completely. So that didn't bother them at all. 
In fact, he's mapping his conversion on, on the geography of their framework, of their plausibility structure. They don't get mad about that stuff. They're like, oh, okay. When do they get mad? Did you see the moment where the mob flashed again? It wasn't over supernatural stuff. It wasn't even over the identification of a Messiah. It's when he claims that the God they worship told him to open the doors of God's promises to non-Jews. And the xenophobia flashed. All of the anger of a nation that is getting ripped apart by Rome and before that by Persia and before that. It goes on and on and on. Centuries and centuries of the Jewish people's deep persecution. Suddenly, here's a guy that's connected to the most influential, most strict teacher of Judaism that has now betrayed Judaism. He has now said, we don't need a wall between us and Mexico. Open the door, wipe out the immigration policy, let him come in. And he said that in the middle of a Trump rally. That's what happened here. He stood up at a Democratic rally for Clinton, Hillary Clinton and he said abortion is murder. That's what happened here. He picked the thing. He said that a woman has no right to choose. He goes after the thing. The thing that matters the most to the group. Why? Why did Paul do this? He was, he was, everything was okay. He had him. He had him. He was talking about Jesus. And they were okay with it. What in the world happened? Why did he keep going? To talk not just about Jesus, but who Jesus was in a way that he knew they couldn't accept it. Why did he do this? Why did he even bother? It wasn't just love. Because many of us have loved people, but not said something to them. We don't say something to the person when we love when we think there's no hope of them accepting it. We've got this saying, right? Pearls before swine. It's a, it's, a, it's a biblical saying that's come over into the Shakespearean lexicon that teaches us you don't just go and provoke a fight if you're not going to get anything out, if there's no chance. Why does Paul go there? He starts because of his love, but why does he go all the way? Because he has hope. That's why. Because Paul is thinking, just suppose, just suppose, maybe, maybe they will accept the work of God in their midst. Why would Paul endanger his life a third time? First time the crowd, second time the Roman guard, now third time he picks up, why, why, why does he do that? Because he's got hope he's he's saying just suppose that's only a hope like that will explain why he so carefully sketched out his deeply devout Judaism and then blew it all away by the mention of Gentiles he was thinking just suppose they accept the good news now 
we live in a very different moment. A different time with a whole set of different issues. None of these issues are playing out like this in America right now. I mean, some of them in a, in a different way, but there, there's no anger over if God is open to everybody or not. But we can learn a lot from Paul. See, our job when we deal with narrative texts of Scripture is to see the vision of reality they cast and then stand in that vision and see where it links up with our own lives today. And I say that we desperately need to imitate Paul at precisely this moment in our city and in our country. And first of all, we need to learn how to imitate his unapologetic witness, even when he's scared. If you're a Christian, and I know not everyone here is, but if you're a Christian, look at Paul and gather up your courage, and even though you're afraid, publicly identify yourself as a Christian to the people you work with, And you live near. When you identify yourself publicly as a Christian today in America, you get some blank stares. Sometimes you get some pushback. And some of us live in places and work in places and have families where you get thinly disguised hostility. But whatever the reaction, we have to renew our willingness at this point in time to be public about our faith, to be open with people about what we believe, and to invite friends and co-workers into spaces where Christianity is presented and thought about in a friendly climate. Like Paul, we must be willing, even when the stakes are high, and even when we're afraid, we must be willing to not hide. If you are a real Christian, then your faith is central to how you think about things and how you make decisions and how you face the very complicated world that we live in. Just be candid. Just be natural. Just share who you are and how you live and what you do. Just share it with others. And they'll learn that you go to church and that you have a vital life-shaping faith. For some of us, the circles we run in, this is pretty easy, but I know it is not that way for everyone. Some of you live and work and you know that the place you live Everything is tolerated, but an exclusive belief. And we have gotten to this moment where enlightenment, secular society has gotten rigid and intolerant. It's ironic, isn't it, that our separation between church and state has not produced a protection from holy wars. It's merely exposed us to holy wars by other means. We live in this moment where tolerance has become intolerant of exclusive beliefs. Janelle and I are watching for the second time West Wing, best TV show ever. And, and last night, the episode we watched, 
It was amazing. There was a hate crime against a, a gay man in Ohio, I think. And, and the staff is all debating if they're going to publicly denounce hate crimes. And Leo McGarry, the chief of staff, insists that they don't because they don't yet know as a Democratic Party if they're willing to make laws against opinions. It's, 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 it's a changing world. This was in 1999. And we're living in this moment where our, 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 our liberal society, and I mean that in the best sense of the, in the term, in a, in a way that I, I would deeply affirm it, and I think all of us would. I'm not using it in the Democrat, Republican sense. I'm using, we live in this moment where our society doesn't have the ability to produce the kind of citizens it takes to fund our society where tolerance is becoming intolerant where believing in God of whatever description is now considered childish and harmful where Christianity is tolerated so long as it doesn't raise its ugly head and speak publicly and distinctively Christianly some of you are experiencing this You're experiencing it through the speech laws and the increasingly shrill judgment regarding which opinion you have about sexuality. Ironic, isn't it, that in a culture that puts such a premium on transparency, freedom of expression, and the right to be yourself, that Christians know they will be sharply criticized for being themselves. We are living in a season where the Enlightenment project has hardened into a kind of aggressive secularism, an aggressive atheism, a more militant, a fundamentalist secularism. The irony. And so some of us, and it, it, I don't think it, it even has always occurred at a fully conscious level. I think that some of us have semi-consciously developed a posture of hiding, muting our beliefs. We've given up our distinctive beliefs in order to have a say in the public square. Just a few weeks before this riot, Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. A few weeks before this. And in that letter, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean to be ashamed of the gospel? Does he mean he's not embarrassed by it? Yeah, but he means more than that. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This helps us to see that what he means by ashamed, not ashamed, that the opposite of being ashamed is not only not being embarrassed, it is being willing to suffer for our public identification with the gospel. In other words, don't give in to your fear of rejection. Don't give in to your fear of being thought of as unsophisticated. 
Don't give in to your fear of being associated with something that's not true. Paul was not teaching Jews to abandon Judaism. He was not telling them they didn't have to get circumcised. He was not telling them they didn't have to follow Torah. In fact, he was following Torah. He was still practicing circumcision. He was, the things he was accused of were wrong. And some of us, that's our biggest fear. That we'll be accused, God forbid, of being a Democrat. Or God forbid of being a Republican. Or we'll be accused of being intolerant. All things which might not even be anywhere close to the truth. But our fear of a false accusation, it subtly pushes us into dulling the distinctiveness of our faith. How? How can we find the motivation to walk into our fears? There's a a pastor in New York, and he talked about this a few years ago that a way I found quite compelling. This is a quote. He says, the gospel helps us to walk into our fear. First, the joyful effects of the gospel in our own lives gives us an enormous energy for witness. We're just so glad what Jesus has done for us. It wells up in us. It's a wellspring. How can we keep our mouths closed about such a wonder? Second, the gospel humbles us. It leads us to approach those who do not believe without superiority and with respect. Since we are saved only by God's grace and not, only our, and not our own goodness, we expect to often find wisdom and compassion in non-Christians that at many points might even exceed our own wisdom and compassion. Third, the gospel brings us a new and profound experience of God's love and this lessens the sting of fear, even the fear of disapproval. He goes on, all this All this work of the gospel drains us of the influences that can lead us to treat non-Christians as evangelism cases. People we relate to, talk to, care for only in order to win to Christianity. When a person does that, he says, you objectify and dehumanize those people in an unwinsome way. No. The gospel teaches us That we do not love people in order to share our faith with them. We share our faith with them because we love them. Paul put it this way to the Thessalonians. He said, as a nursing mother cares for her children, so I cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very selves. Now, that's what I mean by being unapologetic in our witness. I mean going public with what's in your heart, but doing it with humility and respect for others. Christianity, right at the center, love God, very exclusive, not just any God, not a vague God, but the particular God who is the creator and redeeming. Love him with all of your heart. Have this very exclusive view that that God is the only true God and all other gods are false, they're deception. Super exclusive. And the second command is very close to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So Christianity holds a radically exclusive view and it produces a tremendously inclusive life. 
See, that's the reason our modern secular society can't produce the citizens necessary to actually live out the society we have. Because it wants to put inclusivism at the center instead of putting an exclusive view at the center that leads to inclusivism. It's complicated, but it's still true. So we can learn a lot from Paul here in Acts 21 and 22. We need to imitate his unapologetic witness. And this is going to become more and more important. Secondly, and much more quickly, we also need to imitate his undiminished hope. The current presidential election has amped up the rhetoric so high. You can barely get a hearing anymore unless you just plan a scorched earth you know, approach. Burn everything to the ground. Democrats and Republicans, they're both trying to start a new revolution. They've both bought into this scorched earth strategy. If the election doesn't go our way, life as we know it is over. Do you know that I heard both parties say that this week? I listened to an interview of Oprah by her favorite Christian pastor and she said the reason to vote for Hillary is because if you don't you don't love America and America's going down and then one of the sort of Christian intellectuals in New York Eric Metaxas gave a gave a speech at Liberty and he said unless you vote for Trump America's going to pot scorched earth And then there's the two candidates themselves, a pair of 70-year-olds yelling at each other like toddlers. It's an all-or-nothing mindset, and Christians have to resist it. Whether it's Trump or Hillary or Metaxas or Oprah, we cannot give in to this because our Creator is the Redeemer And he opens up possibilities of hope. I'm not saying that Christianity inoculates us against doubt and despair. I'm saying that it provides a wellspring of hope in the midst of doubt and despair. That's Paul. Remember, why did he even bother? It was because he hoped things would be different. Maybe, just maybe, they will see God and his goodness. And so he went for it. He risked his life on the hope. Christians have lived through political conversions in the past. Whichever side you're on, and I think we're going to lose either way as America. This is me. You might have a different view. But listen, whatever side you're on, when you give in to drastic, cataclysmic terms, you will open yourself to bad ideas and extreme solutions that will, at the end of the day, destroy in unintended ways. Yeah, Paul's attempt to share the gospel with the Jerusalem mob, we could dismiss it as wishful thinking. Don't do it, Paul. I don't know if you saw this, but back in in Acts chapter 21, all of the city stirred up against him, verse 30, and the gates of the temple were shut. It's the moment in the Bible where Judaism said no to God. It's the opposite of the day of Pentecost when all of the city listened to the gospel. This moment 
was the no. But even still, Paul had hope. Now, why did he have hope? Because in John chapter 3, verse 8, it says the spirit blows where it wills. In all of creation, the wildest thing is God. Don't despair. Don't buy into progressive liberalism that history follows a straight line of progress. And don't buy into Republican doomsday. Our hope as Christians is not indexed to current events. It is indexed to the creator who is the redeemer. That's what it's tacked to. Our hope is not indexed to what seems likely to happen based on the trajectory of history. Let's learn from Paul that our hope is not based on that. History doesn't move forward in some kind of straight line. God does amazing things. And I think that the cracks of secularism are incredible. The, 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 the shrill rhetoric and the intolerance of the moment is unpalatable to Christians and non-Christians alike. And in this moment, let's stand up and love God with our whole heart and love every neighbor, whatever religion they are, as we love ourselves and be unapologetic in our witness no matter what the potential outcome. And let's be undiminished in our hope because we serve a king in a kingdom that's sure and his will is going to be done. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.